the end of the story hasn't been written. And you and I are to live with injustice, anticipating that in this life we will face injustice. But when Jesus comes, he will right every wrong. And as the prophet says, justice will flow down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, When Life's Not Fair. We're in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, looking at what the Bible has to say about injustice. If you've ever experienced a particular moment when you or someone you love was treated unfairly, how did you respond? Did you want vengeance? A natural response would be to seek justice at any cost and as quickly as possible. But what does the Bible say? What do you do when life doesn't seem fair? Let's open our Bibles and join our teacher with today's message on The Word Unleashed. It was in the late 1700s, upon his graduation from Cambridge, that Charles Simeon was appointed as pastor of the Holy Trinity Church there at Cambridge. It was, in one sense, his dream job, what he had hoped would come about, but it became for many years to him a nightmare. Charles Simeon was a faithful man. He was a man who studied the Scriptures and who carefully taught his congregation all that he learned from the Scripture. But that's not what his congregation wanted. And in fact, they didn't want him. So they boycotted the services. In a historic church like Holy Trinity Church, there were pews that had been purchased by members, affluent members of the church. Those members not only boycotted the church, but they locked their pews so that no one else could sit there either. Simeon, at his own expense, placed benches and chairs up and across the aisles, filling every available spot that wasn't locked away. The wardens of the church threw those benches into the courtyard. They also hired someone else to teach on Sunday evenings. They couldn't get rid of Charles Simeon, so what they decided to do instead was to hire someone else who would come in in the evening and preach, and they did that for 12 years of Charles Simeon's pastorate there. When he tried to teach his own later Sunday evening gathering, on several occasions they locked the doors so that no one could come in, and he finally had to give that up. Unregenerate university students there at Cambridge shouted obscenities at Simeon. They pelted him on a number of occasions with rotten eggs. On one occasion, they even tried to beat him. The faculty ostracized this man who had an evangelical view of Scripture. They ostracized him and slandered him. This is in the late 1700s. And Simeon endured this pastorate for 54 years. It was only really about the last 15 of those 54 years that the circumstances began to change dramatically, and he ended his ministry after 54 years as a loved and beloved pastor in that church. But for so many years, it just wasn't fair. Here's a faithful man trying to serve Christ treated like that. 
You see, life in a fallen world is filled with various kinds of injustice. We all experience that reality every day. But without question, the hardest form of injustice comes as it did to Charles Simeon in the form of undeserved, unwarranted attacks from others. That is exactly what James' first century readers were experiencing. If you were to read the first six verses, as we've gone through them in great detail, but those of you who are visiting with us, if you read those first six verses, you discover exactly the circumstances in which these people lived. The rich and powerful in their communities were using their influence and the local courts to abuse these poor Christians, to withhold their pay, and ultimately to destroy their very lives. Verses 1 through 6, James addresses those wicked, rich, unbelieving people who are using their power and influence to destroy these Christian people. And then in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 5, James turns, you'll notice in verse 7, to the brethren, to Christians. And he explains to them how they should respond to that kind of injustice. In verse 7, he writes, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen of the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. You'll notice that verse 7 begins with the word, therefore. James is saying, in light of the sinful attacks that are being leveled against you by the influential and the rich of your communities, those who are wicked, here's how I want you to respond. And James here gives five specific commands that told these first century Christians exactly how to respond when life is just not fair. Now, folks, our circumstances are different. The injustices that we face bear little to no resemblance to the first century readers of this letter. But our responses should be absolutely the same. James here in these verses gives us five responses to the injustices of life. Five godly responses when life just isn't fair. We examined the first one last week. It's found in verse 7 in the first part of verse 8. Be patient until the Lord's coming. In the same way that the farmer waits for the harvest, we are to wait for the coming of the Lord and the judgment that he will bring. The end of the story hasn't been written. 
And you and I are to live with injustice, anticipating that in this life we will face injustice. But when Jesus comes, he will right every wrong. And as the prophet says, justice will flow down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We're to be patient until the Lord's coming. Justice will be done, but it'll only be done when he comes. There's a second biblical response that I want us to begin to look at this morning. We'll finish this passage, Lord willing, this morning. But there's a second biblical response when life's just not fair. Not only are we to be patient until the Lord's coming, but secondly, we're to be strong in our resolve. Be strong in our resolve. Notice the second half of verse 8. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, I have to be honest with you, and I'm sure you feel to some degree the same way. When you first read that, this is one of those commands in Scripture that on the face of it just doesn't appear very helpful. I mean, you're being unfairly treated, you're looking for sympathy, you're looking for solutions, and James says, strengthen your heart. Fortunately, there's another place where this word strengthen is used in the New Testament that really gives us a glimpse of just how profound this response really is. Turn back with me to Luke for a moment, Luke chapter 9. You'll see this word in a different context. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke writes, when the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, literally for his taking up, when Jesus saw that his earthly ministry was reaching its climax and fulfillment at the cross, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, when he saw that was coming, notice verse 51, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That word determined is the same Greek word translated strengthen back in James chapter 5. Some translations even describe this as he set his face like flint. And the reason they translate it that way is if you trace this Greek word back in the Old Testament, you find in the Old Testament this word often translates a Hebrew expression of set your face, determine. You picture someone stealing their face, and that, that's a picture of the determination that's in their heart to do whatever it is they've determined to do. Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem. He strengthened his heart to go to Jerusalem. John Blanchard writes, do you see the picture? Jesus knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He knew the pressures that were mounting and that his enemies were growing in number and ferocity. He knew that ahead lay desertion, trials, blood, sweat, tears, torture, and agonizing death. But he knew something else. He knew that beyond all these lay the resurrection, the ascension, and eternal glory. So he resolutely set out refusing to yield to the pressure around him. That's exactly the picture behind this word and James' command to us back in James chapter 5. You and I are to set our face. We are to determine, knowing that in this life we will face injustice, we are to have a relentless, unwavering grip on the faith and on obedience, even in the midst of trials and 
persecution and temptation. We are to be determined. We are to have a steel resolve to do what's right, knowing that we will face injustice in this life. Ultimately, only God can produce that kind of spiritual strength and determination. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul completes his letter to the dear church in verse 25 saying, Now to him who is able to strengthen, literally, it's the same Greek word, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. God's the one who strengthens our hearts like that, who enables us to resolve, to determine, to live for him in spite of what comes. Peter makes the same point in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, as he finishes his first letter. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm. There's the same Greek word, confirm or strengthen you. God's the one who does it. But God can use other people to accomplish this in us. There's a very interesting passage in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And in Luke 22 and verse 32, he says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, when you've repented, strengthen your brothers. So ultimately, God is the only one that can do it, but he uses people to accomplish this. In Acts 18, verse 23, we read that Peter, on, or excuse me, that Paul, rather, on his third missionary journey, went back to the churches that he had planted And we're told he strengthened the brethren who were part of those churches. So God does it, but he uses others. And here in James chapter 5, we're told to do it. Strengthen your hearts. That immediately raises the question, how? How can you and I generate that kind of spiritual fortitude, that kind of strength and resolve and determination in our hearts that will allow us to respond and to hold on in the faith and even in obedience in the faith in the face of injustice. How does that happen? How can we do that? Well, the answer is in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's how to strengthen your heart. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established. There's our same Greek word. You have been strengthened in the truth which is present with you. Here is how we strengthen our hearts. Here is how God ultimately strengthens us. Here's how he uses other people. And here's how we strengthen our own hearts. Ultimately, our spiritual stamina, our spiritual strength, our spiritual resolve and determination to keep on faithfully living for Christ comes through the truth. As you and I understand the truth of God, as we rehearse these truths about God over and over and over again, we gain spiritual muscle. We gain resolve and determination. 
to live for Christ. We strengthen our hearts by means of the truth. That's the command. Be strong in your resolve. Now turn back to James chapter 5. Notice the impetus, the motivation that we're given here by James. You'll notice that the the impetus to be patient in verse 7 was the reality of Christ's return. He's coming. But in verse 8, James uses the imminence of Christ's return. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. The arrival of the Lord is near. Literally, the parousia, the arrival of the Lord has come near. Now, as James wrote what is probably the first book in our New Testament, sometime in the mid-40s A.D., he argues here that the return of Christ had come near then. It's been 2,000 years, and Jesus still hasn't returned. So how could James say that the return of the Lord has come near in the mid-40s A.D.? Well, Peter answers this question. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? I thought he was coming back. When is it going to happen? Hasn't happened yet. Been a long time. James said it was near. And the the argument they use, notice in verse 4, is an argument called uniformitarianism. That is, basically they say, look, God God has never intervened in human history before. What makes you think he's going to do it now? Notice what they say in verse 4. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Everything's always the same. God's never interjected himself into human history, so what makes you think he's ever going to do it? Verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. They forget two great divine interventions, creation and the flood. Notice verse 5, it escapes their notice that by the word of of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Oh yes, God has intervened in human history. He started it. He created it. He made this earth. But they've also forgotten that he destroyed it. Verse 6, through which, that is water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. They forget that God has intervened with cataclysmic, all-consuming destruction in a worldwide flood. Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. You know what Peter's saying? He's saying, listen, the doctrine of uniformitarianism is wrong. In reality, God has interjected himself into the world, and he's going to do it again. Yeah, your life may look like it just goes on and everything's the same, but there is a day coming when the world as we know it will be destroyed by God. Say, when's it going to happen? Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Time is totally different to God. 
He lives outside of it. It says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Listen, the reason the Lord doesn't intervene in our world with all of its wickedness, with all of its sin, is not because he's lost touch. It's not because he's weak and can't do it. It's because he's patient. And he's waiting for those whom he has loved and set his love upon to come to repentance. But in the end, he's coming. He's coming. The return of the Lord has come near. You have to understand that near in time is relative to the person. That's what Peter's saying here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Time is different to God than it is to us. Let me give you a little example. I was thinking this last week about our girls. My wife and I were away celebrating our anniversary, and we were talking about our girls and how they're growing up. For me as a parent, having lived more years than they have, their becoming adults seems very near. I, I find myself, you know, kind of humming sunrise, sunset, that little sentimental song about how quickly the years fly past and how they grow, and before you know it, they're married, and life just keeps marching on. So to me, their becoming adults is very near. But to them, very near means lunch, or it means next week, or it means Christmas. That's very near. It's all a matter of perspective. To God the Father, Christ's coming has come near. And we are to hold on relentlessly to the faith as we wait. We are to set our faces with steely determination. If you've ever had surgery, you understand what's being commanded of us here. You know all about this resolve and determination. As you're told you need surgery, you contemplate it and you realize... Okay, this is going to be unpleasant. There's going to be pain. There's going to be recovery time. But it's important. So you face it with resolve and determination, anticipating what it will accomplish. You just set your face to do it. That's exactly what James is saying. That's how we're to face injustice and trouble in this life. We are to be determined to be strong in our resolve to continue being true to Christ, even in the face of of injustice. When life isn't fair, we must respond, number one, by being patient for the justice that Christ will bring when he comes. And secondly, we must strengthen our spiritual resolve. A third important response to injustice is found in verse 9. Be gracious toward one another. Be gracious toward one another. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. The word complain here means to groan or to sigh. It primarily denotes uh, an inner feeling of criticism, often that isn't even spoken. It's the blame game inside the heart. And we are to refrain from doing this, notice, against one another. Clearly the reference here is to each other in the church, to brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, with a cursory reading of this passage, it's easy to wonder why James inserted this verse here. But if you'll stop to think for a moment, you'll come to full grips with just how well it fits. Think for a moment of how stress of any kind affects our closest relationships. We are prone when we are in the pressure cooker to lash out at those nearby. Listen to Douglas Moo, 
great commentator in the book of James. He writes, Grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close friends and family. So it'd be quite natural if James readers under the pressure of poverty and persecution would turn their frustrations on one another. You see, when our lives are filled with trouble and difficulty, it's a tragic reality that we tend to lash out at the people we love most. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, When Life's Not Fair. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. We do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1 877 577 Word. And be sure to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.